All right. What a fitting um, just song to worship with before we open the word. I think it's First Chronicles three twenty-one through twenty-two that says, "Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed; for His compassions never fail; they are new every morning." Well, good afternoon. I'm, I'm a mover. I'm just gonna just take license here. So forgive me. Abandon everyone rather than just not over mid sermon. So. Um, anyway, well, good afternoon. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Hard to believe. Um, it's actually the last Sunday of 2019, as probably most of you are aware. Um, it's also the last Sunday we'll be sitting in this location as a church. Hard for me to believe, just in the year. Am I loud? It sounds loud. Okay. Um, just in the year we've been here, I know this has been a place of hope and healing and love and compassion and fellowship. And so I'm going to miss this place dearly. It holds a special place in our heart and the heart of our family. But uh, as a church, we do look forward to a new location and what God wants to do in us and through us in 2020 and beyond as a body. Uh, This is also the last Sunday, at least for a few weeks, we'll uh, be sitting in the Gospel of Mark. We'll pause uh, over the New Year, as Pastor Kevin kind of alluded to earlier, and then we'll pick it back up. But hopefully you remember um, that the theme of Mark's Gospel is really Mark answering the question for us, Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So far we have learned that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite self-designation and title. He is the point of everything, as Jesse said several weeks ago. He is the Lord of the law. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But in our text this afternoon, we're going to ask a different question. And our question today is this. Is in light of all that Jesus is, what does it mean to follow Him? What does it mean to be His disciple? Which is why the sermon title for this evening is the call, the company, and the cost of discipleship. The call, the company, and the cost of discipleship. So that being said, we can open our text. It's in Mark chapter 3, 13 through 21. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be, I think, a hardback black one somewhere around you. Feel free to use that uh, for this afternoon's sermon. So Mark chapter 3, 13 through 21. If you had your finger in Matthew where Glenn read earlier, it's just a... I don't know, a handful of pages after that. So it says this, beginning in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergase, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge that anything we hear that is true and right and good and beautiful and gospel comes from you. Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts and enable us to repent and believe again the gospel afresh this afternoon. And that your words would go forth and they would accomplish all they set out to do. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. 
So once again, if you're taking notes, I think this text can be divided into three parts. Uh, the call, the company, and the cost of discipleship. And the first three verses of this text, verses 13 and 15, really address the call to discipleship. So I want to look at what Jesus is calling his followers to. But first, I just want to look at the nature of the call itself. It says this in verses, uh, or verse 13, I should say. That he went up on the mountain and called to them, or called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So the biblical formula for discipleship is this, that Jesus calls, we come. Jesus calls, we come. And there's kind of no circumnavigating or backdooring that equation at all, which means that if Jesus doesn't call us, we don't come. Because it is the call of Jesus that enables our coming in the first place. So it's not just that Jesus calls us and we kind of respond to Him like some sort of spiritual version of Marco Polo in the deep end of the pool that you frequent in the summer. The Bible would teach us that Christ's call is what causes, is what awakens our coming. Jesus says it this way in John six forty four that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Just a handful of verses later in John six sixty five, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Apostle Paul clarifies our condition before Christ's calling in Ephesians 2, and he helps us out here when he says this, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We sang earlier a head full of, what, a heart, head full of rocks and a heart full of stone. Right? And we all know, according to Ephesians 2, that dead people don't do anything. They can't go anywhere, they can't respond to anything, namely because they're dead, right? They're lifeless. I'm a, I'm a nurse and I'm not really involved in, well, we actually are involved in codes. And Amber works with me, Aaron also works at university. This is not a pitch for university. But anyway, um, I'm a nurse and I've never been to a code situation where a dead body or a you know, frequently or newly dead body or corpse just reaches out and grabs the paddles and is like, clear, you know, they, they have to have somebody else do that for them. And as humans with dead hearts, in order for us to do anything, including come to Jesus, we must be acted on by an outside force. And that outside force are the very words of Jesus calling us to Himself. That's why it says in Genesis that Jesus spoke creation into existence. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that Christ upholds the universe. Present tense. I love that. He upholds the universe. Currently, right now, is upholding the universe by the word of His power. It's why the disciples were amazed that even the winds and seas obeyed Him as He stilled the storm with His words, with His voice. When Jesus speaks, everything obeys. Everything obeys, including hell-bound human hearts. That is the nature of His voice. When Christ calls you... You come to Him, which means for us as believers that if you sit here as a believer, you follow Jesus, you love Jesus, you are His disciple, it is because Christ called you to Himself as His voice literally overwhelmed your previously dead state of soul. Which means that we should be really, really, really grateful as a people to be disciples of Jesus. Because Christ has called us to Himself. There's no other way we came to Him. And if for a second... We become proud and arrogant and lofty in our discipleship. It only reveals we have forgotten how we became disciples in the first place. Christ called us. We came. So that's the nature of Christ's call. Now what is the purpose of the call? Mark tells us the purpose of Christ's call is twofold. He says it is to be with Jesus 
and to do what Jesus did. Quite simply, it's to be with Jesus and to do what Jesus did. It says this in verses 14 through 15. That he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So first the text says that he appointed them so that they might be with him. Which means that being, not doing, is foundational for our discipleship to Jesus. If you get nothing else, especially like if you're a new believer, you guys sitting here on the front row, love that y'all sitting here and take notes on the front row. But if you get nothing else out of this sermon, please get this. That your own discipleship, what we often call the Christian life, isn't primarily about doing things for Jesus. God can raise rocks up to do things for Jesus. It is primarily about about cultivating a rich, loving, and joyfully obedient relationship with Jesus. Which means that discipleship isn't mainly informational in nature, it's relational in nature. The word disciple simply means learner or student, but there's kind of um, an understanding of relationship that's lost in that translation. David Guzik says that although a disciple was a student, it wasn't in the classroom or the lecture sense of the word. He says, disciples learn by being with and hearing from their master. Scholars argue a better translation for disciple in our 21st century context is the word apprentice. Another commentator said that in the first century, a student didn't simply study a subject. They followed a teacher. For the original 12 who Christ called in this text, this meant a complete overhaul and upheaval upheaval of their lives, right? They left homes, family, career, all of that to a disciple and apprentice under Jesus of Nazareth. Obviously, for us, this looks a bit different in 2019, 2020, but I think the grammatically incorrect question for us to ask about application would become this. How do we be with Jesus? How is it that we are or be with Jesus? And I think the answer to that question lies in this idea of abiding that Jesus taught on in John chapter 15. And abiding is really just this idea of a continuous connection to the life-giving, soul-sustaining, Trinitarian community of love, joy, and peace that we know as God. And the primary means by which we do this, by which we abide with Jesus and therefore are with Him are through the spiritual disciplines, or through the disciplines of grace, or the practices of Jesus. Again, a disciple simply didn't study a subject like we know and are familiar with in our education system. They followed a teacher. They fashioned their entire life after their rabbi. They followed his teachings, his disciplines, even his temperament. So, why Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way... The truth and the life. And oftentimes we emphasize, and rightly so, the way portion, or we emphasize the truth and the life portion of that statement. But we're quick to forget that to follow Jesus is to follow a way. It is to follow a way of life that runs congruent with the kingdom of God. To quote John Mark Homer, he says, If we want to experience the life of Jesus, we must adopt the lifestyle or the ways of Jesus. We must adopt his practices, his disciplines, his habits, because, as James K.A. Smith says, the things we do do something to us. Our practices become our habits, and our habits become our character. So for the sake of simplicity and just not to overwhelm you with even more New Year's resolutions, we kind of boil down the spiritual disciplines into three gospel pillars. They are this, word, community, and prayer. Word, community, and prayer. And so to answer the question, how do we be with Jesus? 
I would simply say by saturating your life in these three disciplines. Just immerse your minutes, your hours, your days, your weeks, your months, your years, decades of your life in the practices and the disciplines of word, community, and prayer. And as we adopt the lifestyle of Jesus, we will in fact experience the life of Jesus. So Christ calls us to be with Him, but that is not all He calls us to. It says in verses 14 and 15 that He appointed the twelve so they might be with Him, and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So we are called to be with Jesus, but we're also called to do what He did. And the reason um, I say that he, we're called to do what He did is because if you remember back probably a couple months ago at this point, Back to Mark chapter 1, um, in the middle of Mark chapter 1, Jesus was in kind of a, the midst of a healing movement, right? Everybody loves a healing movement, like you get your leg fixed, you can't walk. You're happy about it. That's understandable. And Jesus, in the midst of this newfound stardom and kind of instant celebrity status, says this surprising thing to Peter in Mark 1, 38-39. He says, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. Pastor Kevin um, correctly taught us in that moment and on that week as we looked at that text that Christ's primary purpose is to preach the gospel. It goes on to say this in verse 39, that he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Christ's primary purpose was to preach the gospel and he would accompany that with casting out demons and healing the sick. And in the same way, as Christ's disciples, we do what he did. So we preach the gospel and we heal the sick slash cast out demons. Now, don't read too much into the whole casting out demons, healing the sick thing. I'm not saying you should lay hands on everyone who has the sniffles. If that were the case, y'all be like, boom, and my kids in the face right now. They're all snotty and yucky. Um, But it does show us that in ushering in the kingdom of God, there is both a theological component and a practical component. So we care for people's souls, yes and amen, all day long. But that is not all we are called to do as disciples of Jesus Christ. We care for people's bodies. We care for their emotions. We care for their whole being because God has made them a whole being. So practically, what do we preach and how do we heal? Well, as disciples, we simply preach what our rabbi preached. In Jesus' first sermon, his simple gospel message, and we say it all the time here, is to repent and believe in the gospel. Another translation of that would be to rethink and trust in the gospel. As a teacher, Jesus was challenging his disciples to repent or to rethink what they believe to be true about the world and about reality and how life works as a whole and to trust that what Jesus said was true about reality was in fact true and right and good. Jesus says it differently in Luke 9.23 when he says to deny yourself, deny your whole way of life, your paradigm by which you see the world, and to follow Jesus and his vision of the good life and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Now before we kind of get off this preaching point, let me just say this about preaching. If we are going to preach the gospel that Jesus preached, we have to know the gospel Jesus preached. To say it a little bit simpler maybe and in a different way, before we can be the teacher, we must first be the student. Because the proximity of the disciple will determine the precision of the message. If we become unhinged from the teachings of Jesus, we will inevitably preach a false gospel. But if we humbly sit under his teachings, if we give heed to his words, we will, as Paul said in 1 Timothy, protect not only ourselves, but our hearers as well. 
So we preach what Christ preached, but we also heal people very practically. And again, I don't mean that we're to go trying to cast out demons or, you know, I get you holy water or whatever as you hand somebody a Dasani. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Um, I think there's actually a type of healing that is far easier to come by and much more needed in our culture. And that is the healing balm of a compassionate heart and a listening ear. It's probably not news to you. Our culture is more depressed, more anxious, and more medicated than ever before. This is such an epidemic in the West that in January 2018, Great Britain's Prime Minister appointed Tracy Couch as the country's first ever loneliness minister. Yes, that's a real job. (laughs) She probably gets compensated well for it. But while Britain may be the only country to appoint this kind of public office, it is not the only country taking notice of the widespread epidemic of loneliness and depression in our world. A study as old as 2010 cited that more than a third of Americans over the age of 45 felt lonely. The U.S. Surgeon General called loneliness a growing health epidemic and said social isolation is associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. At least it's free, right? (laughs) Sorry, that was a bad joke. Okay, now I say all that to say... That in our world of nonstop noise, endless distraction, and the tragic irony of being more connected to more people than ever before, and yet at the very same time more isolated and alone than ever before, there is something to be said about the discipline of compassionately and attentively listening to another's story. Pastor Pete Scazzaro points out that the Gospels are filled with accounts of Jesus' interaction with individuals. Jesus would listen to everyone from Matthew the tax collector to Zacchaeus the wee little man. He would hear out a Pharisee by night and a Samaritan prostitute in the heat of the desert day. Skazar says that Jesus was always present, never in a rush or distracted. He says he gave people the dignity of listening to their stories. And as Christ's disciples, I think we should do the same. We would do well. I love this from Henry Nouwen, who was just brilliant. Everything that he says, and I find quotes of, I just like write it down somewhere to see again. But he says this on the subject. He says, To care means, first of all, to be present to each other. From experience, you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, you know they speak to you. And when they ask questions, you know it is for your sake, not their own. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms and they encourage you to take your own life seriously. Imagine CTK, the impact we could have on our city and our individual spheres of influence if we would simply preach what Christ preached, to repent and believe in the gospel, and to heal the souls of those around us by being fully present and inviting them to take their own lives seriously. That's the call to discipleship, and I promise that is the brunt, or at least probably the first half of this message. The rest of the other two portions won't be given quite that much time. So if you're like looking at your watch and thinking, what time does Longhorns close, just relax. Okay, look with me at verses 16 through 19. This is about the uh, company of discipleship. It says this in verse 16, that he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Bonergase, I had to get somebody else to say that for me on an app. That's how they said it, so I'm going to go with that. Bonergase, that is Sons of Thunder. And just an aside, that is the nickname I'm claiming over CTK for my two boys. 
Not that some other kids and parents don't deserve it. I've been in the nursery. Your kids are not that great. Um, <laughs> but that's comedic relief. Just relax. But I love Sons of Thunder. You can take another whatever phenomenon of weather if you want. Sons of lightning. Sons of dust bowls. I don't know. Whatever. But you take them. Anyway, back to 18. I should stick to the script. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, the, Je- the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, on the company of discipleship, I just want to make two pretty quick observations here. The first is this, that Christ calls a community. Christ calls a community. From the outset, discipleship was always intended to be lived out in fellowship. To quote Matt Chandler, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. None of them. Now, what's interesting is that this concept of community ran very contrary to the established religious order of the day. The whole culture of the Pharisees was actually intended to isolate them from community. The word Pharisee literally means separated one. So once again, even in this point, we see that Jesus is inviting us to repent and believe or to rethink and trust his vision and values for the kingdom of God as it pertains to discipleship and community at large. And the reason Christ calls us to community is first and foremost because God exists in community. Our God is triune in nature, and for us to rightly image Him forth as His image bearers, which we alone are in humanity, we must exist in community. To quote William Barclay, he says this, The whole essence of Christianity was that it bound men to their fellows and presented them with the task of living with each other and for each other. So just ask you on this point, What value do you place in community in your own life? And to the men specifically, what value do you place uh, on community for your family as you lead a wife and perhaps children? When the schedule gets crowded, our church, MC, and your DNA group, the first things to go, or do you see them as so vital to your discipleship that you make sure they're actually the first things that have to stay on the schedule? And if you haven't placed a high value on community thus far, it's okay. No shame for me or anybody else in the room, but this now actually becomes an opportunity for you to practice and rehearse the gospel, to repent and believe that what Jesus values and believes to be true about you is actually the very best thing for you. The second observation on this point is this, that in choosing between the haves and the have-nots, Jesus typically chooses the have-nots. Anybody see the movie The Little Giants? I'm dating myself a little bit. It's like 20 years old. Okay. Fantastic movie, top five of all time. Like three of you in the room, so nobody else knows what I'm talking about. Okay, anyway, it's like this hard knock gang of rascals that have no money and don't know how to play football, and they beat like the Dallas Cowboys in the city of probably whatever, Podunk, Oklahoma, right? So, anyway, Jesus chooses the little giants, the kid who like puts the cup up to his mouth because he thinks it's like a Darth Vader thing. It's gross, but you should watch it. Anyway, um, Jesus typically chooses the have nots. Bad tangent. But the 12 apostles, they're no all-star lineup. This is a mixed bag of unimpressive, very ordinary men who have their fair share of flaws and character and skeletons in the closet. For starters, as I kind of already mentioned, Jesus calls the sons of thunder. Like if you remember the Mighty Duck movies, I think of the Bash Brothers, right? This is kind of the, the spiritualized version of that. But commentators actually believe they got this name because of their fiery disposition. These are the kids who get kicked out of church. Like, who gets kicked out of church, right? We're supposed to welcome sinners. It's like somebody getting kicked out of an all-you-can-eat buffet for eating too much. 
That's happened to you, no shame. Um, and then you have Matthew, the tax collector, who is Jesus, or as Kevin, close to Jesus, um, pointed out a few weeks ago, right, was seen as a sellout and a traitor. He taxed his own people for the Roman government and likely stole on top of that from his own people. Nobody who was Jewish would have liked Matthew at all. And along with Matthew, um, Jesus actually calls Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of radical, violent nationalists who pledged to murder anyone seen as a threat to the Jewish sect. So you have both the immoral mercenary in Matthew and the radical patriot in Simon both playing for the same team. All because Jesus called them together. Then you have Peter, who's just like always sticking his foot in his mouth. At one point he tried to rebuke Jesus. Not a good idea, just for the record. And then to cap things off, Jesus chose Judas, who would eventually betray him. Now I say all of this in a very small part to challenge us. Because if Jesus can bring this motley crew together, surely partisan politics and parenting styles should not be able to tear us apart. But in large part, I say this to encourage us as a body. Because if you sit here this afternoon and you feel disqualified from Christ for whatever reason... You look ahead to 2020, you think the last year was wasted, or you maybe think you're not smart enough, or uh, not rich enough, or maybe you're too rich, and if that's the case, you can make a checkout too. Just kidding. Um, but, but whatever you may feel like would disqualify you from following Jesus, Jesus Christ shows us there is in fact no such thing. And He does it through the foundation upon which He will ultimately build His church and advance His kingdom. Lastly, this text speaks to the cost of following Jesus. Look with me at verses 20 through 21. It says this, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, or they were saying, He is out of his mind. All things come at a cost. Excuse me. All things come at a cost. Christmas well acquaints us with that, right? Some costs are obvious, like a price tag. Others, not so much, such as time, effort, attention. But everything in life costs us something. Because just the time that we devote to one thing means that we can't devote that time to any other thing. So everything in life comes at a cost. Following Jesus is no different. Discipleship will cost you. I'd even go as far as to say that if it doesn't cost you, I think you have to question whether or not you're following the Jesus of the Bible or one of your own making. And here in this text, Jesus shows us the gospel cost him, and it will cost us as his disciples three things, all of which are common idols to the human heart. The first thing that the gospel will cost us is security or comfort. Commentators agree one of the primary reasons for Jesus' family's indictment of him being out of his mind is his seemingly impulse decision to leave a stable, secure, and traditional career as a carpenter to become a nomadic preacher who, in Jesus' own words, had no place to lay his head. And just as the gospel costs Jesus security and comfort, it will do the same for those who follow him. Discipleship will cost us time. Even the time you spend on a Sunday to be here or an MC or the time you devote to spiritual disciplines, it will cost us comfort. Even in this text, we see that the disciples gave up privacy and dinner just for those that would need Jesus. But perhaps most notably, discipleship will cost us money. 
Just the simple act of tithing is a weekly rebellion against the gods of money, materialism, and the American dream that would like to pry our hearts away from Christ. Secondly, the gospel will cost us safety. Another reason scholars believe Jesus' family was so critical of him was his open rebellion against the powers of the day. William Barclay says that Jesus was obviously on his way to a head-on collision with the orthodox leaders of the day. He says no one could take on the scribes and the Pharisees and hope to get away with it. And obviously Jesus did not. His own discipleship cost him his life. Scholars say that all but one of the original apostles were martyred for their faith. And while that sort of threat may not be much of a reality for us in America, at least not yet, it's still very much a reality for many of our brothers and sisters around the world who follow Jesus. Lastly, following Jesus will cost us the approval of others. Because Jesus isn't associated with a political party or an economic agenda or a socioeconomic status. He makes enemies on both the right and the left. He is hated by his fiercest of enemies and misunderstood by his closest of friends and even his immediate family. As Jesus so bluntly said in Matthew 10, 34-27, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. One commentator said that when Jesus said a man's enemies will be those from his own home, he may well have been speaking from bitter experience. And I believe this cost, the approval of others, is perhaps the most difficult for us to swallow in the age of Facebook friends and Instagram followers. We all like to be liked. H.G. Wells said it well when he said that for most people, the voice of their neighbor is louder than the voice of God. What will people say is one of the first questions most of us are in the habit of asking. So perhaps the question to close with is this. What will it cost you to follow Jesus? Maybe a better question to ask would be, what will it cost you to not follow Jesus? Because there, while there certainly are costs to discipleship, as Dallas Willard wisely pointed out, there is also a cost to non-discipleship. There is an eternal cost to the man or woman who chooses to gain the whole world only to forfeit their very soul. My encouragement to you as we close would be this, is to, don't, to, or to not choose the immediate over the eternal. I want to close with this promise from Christ to those who would follow him and us as a body at CTK from Mark chapter 10, 29-31. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sister and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as disciples and followers of you, God, we recognize that only happened because you called us. Father, would we weigh the cost to discipleship and would we measure it wisely against the cost to non-discipleship? God, we thank you for calling sinners God, such as me and those with me in this room. We love you, Jesus. Help us to follow you more closely and love you more dearly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Well, every week we um, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, or communion, or Eucharist. Um, and it is 